We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode number five, Lion Legacy. I feel like this is a milestone episode. Yes, happy birthday to the podcast. Happy fifth, fifth. fifth birthday, fifth episode birthday. All whatever right. You, whatever you want to call it. Love it. Hey, so big weekend coming up at Penn State starting February 19th. We've got the big dance marathon. For those who are not familiar with dance marathon, which means you did not go to Penn State, but for the non-Penn Staters out there, 46-hour dance marathon by the students to raise money for pediatric cancer. Thon is one of the proudest points, I think, of being a Penn Stater, right? Thon is the largest student-run philanthropy in the world, both in revenue as well as volunteer participation. And it really goes on all year round in terms of raising money, but culminates this weekend with students dancing over $180 million raised over the lifetime of Thon for pediatric cancer, which is just amazing to think what Penn Staters do. Students, alumni, anyone who contributes, I think there's one common thing, and that's Penn Staters are passionate about giving back and making this world a, a better place. Speaking of Thon, why don't we talk about your experiences with Thon? And I know your wife and my friend, Jess, was a dancer back in the day, right? She was. So I did not dance in Thon, but Jessica did our senior year. And so I, I was there for moral support. I stayed as many hours as I could, but then, you know, went back to the apartment late at night to get some sleep, which I felt bad about because they all couldn't do that. And then I also remember at the end, she was pretty delirious, as anybody would be after 48 hours. By the way, we should know when Jared and I were at Penn State, it was 48 hours. I don't know, they shaved off two hours along the way. But after 48 hours, anybody would be delirious. And I think all she wanted was to go to sleep and get Gumby's pizza. <laughs> all right. If you want Gumby's after dancing for 48 <laughs> hours, Gumby's you will get. And that's sure. what we got. We got some Gumby's pizza. There you go. Make her happy. And then she probably went straight to sleep right after. Yes, sir. Yep. Hey, and just real quick, I want to give a shout out to Avery Olarekin and Dan Zhang. I do some work with the Penn State Sports Business Club. Those two gents are dancing this weekend. However, it is a virtual dance marathon because obviously we've got a little bit of a situation with COVID and we're not gathering all these people in the Bryce Jordan Center, that's for sure. So shout out Avery, Dan, anyone else who is dancing, who is giving, if you're able to give. We would certainly appreciate it. Thon would certainly appreciate it. The Pediatric C Cancer Mission would certainly appreciate it. And you can visit thon.org. Well said. So, Jared, Thon being in February every year kind of reminds me of the winter, reminds me of the cold. And I'll tell you, the weather that we've been having, at least around where I am in suburban Philadelphia, it's been a winter. So the last uh, few weeks seems like we're getting some winter weather every couple of days, I'm personally getting a little bit tired of it. But the reason I mention this is because our guest this week is Mallory Brook. She is a meteorologist by trade from Penn State's excellent meteorology program. And she's also a weather consultant, which our listeners will learn what that means. We learned a lot about 
the weather and what she does up in Maine. They certainly know a little bit about winter weather up there. Uh, we hope you enjoy it, and it'll be a little bit of a whirlwind. All right. Let's welcome Mallory Brook, 2008 graduate meteorology and owner of Northeaster Weather Consulting, a very suitable name given the <laughs> snow that's been hitting the Northeast this February. Prior to starting her own business, she was a TV meteorologist in Portland, Maine, where she still resides today. And when Mallory's not forecasting the weather, she's actually out in it. An avid runner, hiker, skier, and six-time triathlete, as well as top fundraiser for Maine Cancer Foundation's Try for a Cure. Welcome, Mallory, to Lion Legacy. Well, thanks so much. It's great to be here. I, I think it's only suitable to start with, so how's the weather these days in Maine? <laughs> <laughs> the weather is snowy and cold. It was uh, 17 degrees when I went out just to pick up the kids from practice. Uh, it's going to be a cold few days, but we love the snow and love to be out in it. So that's why I moved up here, actually. So I have no complaints. It's definitely been a cold winter in the Northeast, that's for sure. <laughs> it helps business, so it helps me. <laughs> <laughs> so a little backstory for, for the listeners. After our first episode a few weeks ago, I got a text from our mutual friend, Michelle Martin. Shout out to Michelle, even though she's not a Penn Stater, she's still good people. <laughs> now, Michelle says, hey, I have the perfect person for your show. She proceeds to tell me about you, and she's, oh, former on-air meteorologist, and I'm excited because I know Penn State's got a great meteorology program. And then she goes, and now she's a weather consultant. And the first thing I think about is, all right, what is a weather consultant? I have an <laughs> app for that. And what is this all about? Sure. And like you, many don't know what a weather consultant does or that they exist. Most of my clients outside of the ski industry didn't know a weather consultant existed until I approached them with possible products. So a weather consultant provides customized forecasts for a client. Now, there are a lot of clients out there that really need precise forecasts to make business decisions and apps uh, are really tough to come by in the name of accuracy. I can't tell you where apps get their weather information. And for the most part, it's raw model data. Uh, so a lot of computer models are generated each day within the U.S., outside the U.S. And we consider them guidance because, again, it's technology trying to mimic the atmosphere. So when apps just get raw data, it's whatever that model put out. There's no human interaction to it, which for a lot of places is not very helpful, especially uh, in areas that have mountains or near water or can have other microclimate effects. So that's where some companies reach out and want to get customized forecast information. And most of my clients, about 65% of them are ski resorts. And I also work with utilities as well as plow contractors. And then I have a small summer piece in weddings and events that are outdoors. Of course, Maine and New England are very heavy in summer wedding and things like pop-up thunderstorms can always come in. And I help them navigate that to still keep plan A going, even if the weather doesn't cooperate. So I have my uh, feet in a few different areas of water, and I still actually freelance for a TV station in Portland, and so I still have a broadcast end to this as well, which I enjoy in the small doses that I get to do it. 
Very cool. So Mallory, I want to interject here for a moment. I know we're a couple of weeks behind, but I heard that it was just recently International Weather Person's Day. So yeah. um, happy International Weather Person's Day to you and, and our Thank other you. favorite weather people out there. I appreciate um, that. <laughs> we'll make sure that we're recognizing you. So you touched upon it a moment ago about your clients and tell us a little bit more about what your output looks like. So if I'm an owner of a ski resort or mm -hmm. I'm somebody that's getting married in the spring, and I hire you, what are you providing me with what? Is it a data package? Is it, What type of information am I getting? So each client package is different depending on the industry. Uh, so my ski forecasts are highly detailed. That's, like I said, the basis of my business is our ski forecasting. It's something I took over from a previous meteorologist who retired. So I took this over four years ago and his template was an Excel spreadsheet. And it was a static spreadsheet he sent once a day to ski areas. And as I was getting ready to take this over, I had already had a great relationship with ski areas in Maine and New Hampshire because I worked with them a lot in my broadcast days. And I was particularly close with folks at Sunday River here in Maine and told them I was going to be taking over. And the uh, president at the time gave me some really sound advice about how to bring this into the next century. <laughs> and go beyond an Excel spreadsheet and how he wanted to basically have the equivalent of an app, but with accurate information. So I took it upon myself, along with some mentoring from people like Michelle and uh, others who were more well-versed in business, because remember, I came out with a meteorology degree. I didn't know a lot about running my own business. And found two developers who were willing to work with me to build this one-of-a-kind product. It is not found anywhere else in the ski world. And it's a web-based digital dashboard that connects directly to on-mountain weather stations through a partnership I have with a snowmaking engineering firm in New Hampshire called Snowmatic. They were recently uh, merged with HKD, which is a big snow gun manufacturer. And so what these clients get is not only current conditions from their mountain, which can vary so dramatically with elevation. But my forecast is also now on this dashboard and it has its own algorithm to check accuracy of my forecast based on current conditions. So this product in, essentially takes into account the microclimate of each of my clients in its own way, which is a product that is uh, not out there anywhere else, uh, which is really awesome. So we developed that algorithm and we developed this dashboard uh, with these two developers. And we keep building on it every year. Uh, there's now graphs. We focus on wet bulb. We focus on wet bulb temperature for, for snowmaking is key, not just regular air temperature, but that's a whole other thing we could get into for an hour. But that's what they focus on. So I've started doing graphing. We do historicals. I keep all the data from the station so I can do analysis later on. So that's a really big package that I offer them. And it's like nothing else out there. And it's not like anything else I offer other clients. Utilities, plow contractors, weddings uh, are still Excel-based products that will come out dependent on the weather. So for utilities, if it's something that's going to impact power lines or the infrastructure, they will get forecasts more often than if it's a quieter time period. Same thing with plow uh, folks. So just before we were on, I was sending out forecasts to plow folks because it's the snow tomorrow. So that's just as needed for weddings. 
It's typically two or five days beforehand, day of forecast. And then if there is a chance of storm activity, I actually monitor the radar because a wedding planner is enough on their plate. So I sit back, I monitor the radar and let them know if something's incoming to the direct location of the wedding. And if there is, they have time to maneuver inside. Typically they can move times. So you don't have to just scrap the wedding. You just shift things around. So it's a little different depending on what area you're in for forecasting. So Mallory, one of the things that as a consumer of the local broadcasting weather. I hear a lot, especially in the wintertime, about the models that they use. I think the popular ones, the GFS, the Euro, the NAM, and there's a fourth one that's escaping me. Do you use any of those at all? Or is your forecasting is a little more localized, but do you ever touch upon those more frequently used models? Yeah, for long mid to long range forecasting, the models are incredibly useful because it's guidance for us on what's going to happen in the long term. I look for trends rather than specifics. I look for uh, structure of what's coming down the pike. Uh, and that's where I can start to give some moderate to long term outlooks, especially early season for the ski industry, especially this year it was huge to be able to let them know what to expect with all the different restrictions they were dealing with from COVID. So I use all the models. Typically, I'll use the Euro, the NAM, and the GFS. I think the other one, maybe the Canadian. There's a few That's others it. out yep. there. Yep. The Canadian, it's always fun. It always makes a lot of fun storms that never happen, but it's always <laughs> good to look at. Russ, I'm just impressed that you knew all that. <laughs> I, I didn't know one of those models, and you just rolled out three. Uh, well, I mean, the the winter that we've had so far here, in at least in the Philadelphia area, has not been fun. And it seems like every other day our local weathercasters are telling me about what the models are saying. And uh, I, I just picked up on them. <laughs> it's okay, good. Me, what can I say? Fooled. I love a good weather model. Yeah, don't we all? (laughs) So Mallory, was weather something that you were into at a young age? It was. So I can go back to, in my own memory, the blizzard in 96. I've grown up in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was a fourth grader and the snow was basically taller than me. And we had a week off of school and it was great. And as it was happening, I started thinking, how does this happen? It's just oodles of snow. It's taller than me. You know, we had to shovel it back in those days. And from then on out, I always kept a little log and I would measure snow during snowstorms. And it really intrigued me to a point I wanted to understand how that happened. And it was also a weather phenomenon that could shut down everything, but it, it was inherently so silent. You think of hurricanes and tornadoes and it's roaring and it's destroying and snow just falls and it's beautiful and it's quiet and everything just stops. And it always fascinated me in a weird philosophical way in fourth grade. That was the earliest I remember. My mom claims that from when I was a toddler, I watched the Weather Channel, not Sesame wow. Street. That's what she claims. I can't vouch for that. But I will say I used to go to sleep to the Weather Channel. I woke up to the Weather Channel. I just really loved the science behind it and or what I knew at that point, the science behind it. And so that was my big catalyst was the Blizzard 96. I love it. So everyone is playing in the snow, throwing snowballs, building snowmen, <laughs> and you're measuring the snow, I'm which, measuring, is, yep. which is great. And I remember that 96 blizzard too, because I grew up in New York 
And as you probably know, they never shut the New York City schools down unless it is really bad. So for us to have a day off, it was like a miracle. It was huge. Yeah, it was a good one. I was just telling my son about that the other day. We had about six or seven inches of snow here. And he was asking me, well, how much is this? I said, ah, it's about six or seven inches. Oh, that seems like a lot. And then I pulled the old man card and I'm like, I remember the blizzard of 96. We had 35 inches and I did my whole going up the hill both ways bit. When I was your age. Yeah, dating myself here. When you compare your time as a meteorologist on air with what you told us about today with your specialized clients, what are some of the biggest differences there? Uh, The biggest difference is that I can really, I can really dig deep into science with my clients. And it's not so much them sharing that science with them. It's that I get to use it and I get to forecast snow mostly, which is great and develop that relationship with my clients as well, which I've always liked, you know, it's a very solo job being a meteorologist, even in TV station. And so I like having that, that interaction with my clients and being able to help them make decisions on a daily basis, like I do right now when I work with especially my ski clients, my utility clients, or even in the summer for weddings. It's, it matters what's going into that forecast. And the broadcasting hours are probably the worst part of it. You know, I did a morning show and I had to commute. I live an hour outside of Portland right now. And I commuted two hours a day and I had to be there at three in the morning. So I was up at one thirty in the morning and getting on the road by two to get there at three, to be on air at four 30. And then I didn't get home till noon. And then I split my sleep schedule. So I would sleep for three or four hours in the afternoon if I didn't have to pick the kids up from school and then try and have an evening with the kids and my husband and then go back to bed for four hours. So it was a really tough schedule to maintain, to have any sort of social life, hard to have a family life. And so you have to choose sleep or family time, essentially. And that was really hard after a couple of years. I did the split sleep for uh, three to four years and my health suffered from that. And that was the time when I started really working under this other meteorologist who said, I want to retire. Do you want my business, essentially? So uh, those are the major differences, along with the fact that I could be much more scientific and much more nitty gritty as a consultant than I could on air because you get two minutes. You get two minutes to talk about half a state. Yeah, when you said 1.30, waking up at 1.30 in the morning, I'm like, I'm out. This is this career no, is definitely you. not for me. No, thank um, you. Yeah, it was. I had that wake up since two, from 2009 to 2017. But now what time do you wake up? Now I wake up at 4.30. That is for winter only. So for about seven to eight months straight. And it's every day. So there's no break. And that's for ski season. Yeah, no, no, thank you on 4.30 either. I'll, I'll pass on that <laughs> one as well. So I have to ask, because you, I know you were on air or you still are on air at certain points as well. How hard is it to operate that green screen and make sure that your hands are pointing to the exact location that you want to? It's, uh, it's not as hard as you think. Luckily, I had a lot of practice at Penn State because they have a studio. So I had two years of practicing under my belt before I went on air for the first time. And I would still lose my direction in the, in the green screen sometimes if I was really engaging or talking about something that 
made me forget where I was, but my way out of it was that I would move my hand or move my leg or just shift. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I got to go that way. So it wasn't as hard. Everything is backwards. So that's a little tougher. Any good on-air bloopers? I have not made YouTube. (laughs) That was my goal. (laughs) That was my one goal in television. And I did live ski report for the station in Maine. And I'd ski live down on TV in the morning at 637 once the sun came up. And I said, if I can finish doing my life in ski report and not end up on a blooper reel yard sailing down a mountain, I have done well. <laughs> and I managed to do it. <laughs> it's a great accomplishment. <laughs> I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's been minor bloopers here or there, but nothing that was YouTube worthy. So that's a good accolade to, to hold. <laughs> So I know we're in the dead of winter right now, but when you, we get to the spring, late spring, summertime, do you also follow tornadoes, hurricanes as well? I follow severe and tropical weather mostly for my utility clients. They have to prepare pretty far in advance if they need to call in contractor crews. Same for winter, but they're really the only clients I continue on with in the summer aside from weddings. So it's watching it from a perspective of needing to let them know if they need to start prepping for something, which is tough because they need about five days typically to start calling in crews. And a lot can change in a forecast in five days. Mallory, shifting gears just a little bit, we understand that you're passionate about teaching meteorology to younger kids, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. Share with us how you get the kids excited about meteorology and the weather, and then how do you break it down in a way that is age appropriate, that they can understand if you're talking with an elementary age kid, for example? Yeah, I did a lot of that in my broadcast days. I actually had over 200 school visits before I left that station in, in Portland, and It was really amazing to see how students could connect with weather because they live it. They get excited about extremes, of course. Kids aren't super excited about sunny and 70 for two weeks. But when you can talk about tornadoes or thunderstorms, and up here, of course, blizzards, their eyes light up. They really love it. And there are ways to break down something as complex as a tornado, to students, even in elementary school. So I I typically use the analogy of being in a pool and thinking about how to make the water rotate and how you would have to, you would walk against each other to make a little whirlpool. And, And they can understand that. And I said, we have to think of that in the atmosphere. You need winds coming from two different angles to, to make that happen with wind in the atmosphere. I've had some of the most deep questions from second and third graders. (laughs) I mean, you would just, you fall off your chair a little bit. I've had some really funny questions too, but it's really awesome to be able to do that because I was a fourth grader when I decided this was for me. So it really means a lot to me to be able to give that potential catalyst to another elementary school kid. I love it. That's uh, it's just, just such a great story. And I, I can imagine the kids being excited about the extremes. I mean, you mentioned 70, 70 degrees and sunny for two weeks. Uh, that sounds good to me, but I'm also, <laughs> I'm not an elementary age kid. So yeah, <laughs> it's great in the summertime Yeah, when you want to go to the beach, but other than that, it's a little boring. <laughs> right. Um, so I want to shift topics again, just to make sure we hit everything that's important. We've heard a lot over the years about global warming. How much of what you do is monitoring that at a high level 
like the high level changes in the weather and I guess more of the long term, right? A lot of what you're focusing on is the the, the short term, the prediction for your ski resorts, but global warming is really just, that's a lengthy process. How much do you, are you looking at the long term versus the short? I have my long-term plans for my business actually for that very reason. So another key piece of what I provide clients is the fact that I ingest all their weather data every three hours for every station they have on their mountain and we hold it in our server. And the point of that is for me to be able to do deep dive analysis eventually once I get, uh, you know, I'll do it in probably five years, which isn't a lot of data, but I can start uh getting that data compiled. But then when I get to 10 and 20 and 30, because I hope to do this for the rest of my career, we'll be able to see concretely how Northeast winters are changing. What changes might we have to make into snowmaking infrastructure if we're not getting enough natural snow? When does our first snowmaking window start? And so that's a big part of my long-term plan in my business is to be able to say how Northeast winters are changing and how best can the ski industry adapt to it. Now, before we transition into your Penn State experience, I, I do want to ask one question. And this is such a technical field, right? Deep science, a lot of education, not easy by any means, but sometimes it does get a bad rap. You are the butt of, of jokes that people yep. make. Does that bother you? How do you respond to that? Oh, you know, one a good piece of television was that you develop a thick skin really quick. Most of the comments that I would get 80% of the time had to do with what I wore, not anything about a forecast. So you can <laughs> let things roll off you pretty quick. I try and remind people that like any future predictions, there are changes that can happen. And we are not sticking our fingers up in the air and trying to you know, come up with magic. We're also not just sitting there, at least I'm not, I can't speak for every person out there. I'm not just regurgitating model data. It's hard. It's hard to try and predict the future when the pieces of energy that are making the weather are 30,000 feet above our heads, swirling in ways we don't completely know 100% because we don't live there. And so I don't know if people have enough compassion for what we really are doing. Weather is not created at the surface. It's not created on the ground. It's created above our heads. It's created where airplanes are flying. And there's no continual source of observational data that's going to help us have 24-7 information about what's having, happening 30,000 feet above our heads right now in the many locations we're just sitting at. We have a weather balloon that goes up from a National Weather Service station twice a day. There's two National Weather Service stations in the state of Maine. Maine's pretty big. That's not going to give us a lot of information. So I think people are very quick to be judgmental, which I think is the day and age of being behind your keyboard. I think that's very normal. But if you just step back and think about what we're trying to do here, and what we're trying to analyze and how really little information we have to do it with, I think there'd be a new appreciation for what, what we do and the pressure we're under, especially for forecasts that make or break million dollar decisions. I think everyone's very quick to speak, but not very quick to think. And I think if people step back and said, let me just take a stab at what these people are doing. I think they'd have a new appreciation for it. But 
Unfortunately, not everyone does that. <laughs> I, I think you've convinced everyone who's listening today. I hope so. <laughs> so now we're going to put you into the lion's den, which is a segment <laughs> dedicated to your times at Dear Old State. Yeah. So Mallory, we you're certainly very impressed by what you've done with your career. I'm personally fascinated by how you've you know built up the company that you've took over and what you've done with it. It's really not something that I've ever even heard about. <laughs> Penn State has one of the top meteorology programs. We know that. So tell us a little bit more about how the university has prepared you uh, for your career and, and for these professional endeavors. Penn State was always at the top of my list as soon as I started looking at the prospect of really pursuing this as my career. My brother went to Penn State before me uh, about four years. So he's a 2005 grad. He was in a five-year program. And luckily in his first parents weekend, he said, they have a great meteorology program. You should come up with you know mom and come see it. All right. And that was the beginning of the end. So it was great to get the tour. And so I'd say always parents weekends are, are certainly fruitful for new students because that's where it came for me. But going through that program really set me up so well, not only just for meteorology, but the other paths that meteorology could take you on. So not a lot of people know there's several options you can, it's almost like a minor that you can have in meteorology. It's forecasting communications, which most people know about. That's your broadcasters and your forecasters. You can go into research, you can go into air quality, you can go into weather risk management, you can go into environmental. There's so many other places that meteorologists go than just the broadcast route. And I did go that route, which was great. And it set me up with realistic ideas and realistic thoughts of what my next move was going to be. A lot of people think broadcasters make a boatload of money. We don't. <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> and, you know, and my mentor, uh, Marissa, she's still part of the WeatherCom program in the Department of Meteorology, who I still work with because I help mentor students still in the program. And she was very honest with what we would make in our first broadcasting job. And all of our jaws drop. And we're like, can you live on that? Are you sure? <laughs> And a lot of people then I think went other pathways because of that, because we had honest information about what to expect. They challenged us by different opportunities. So I had the opportunity to do a reporting package for the Weather Channel because we had a connection with Dr. John Neese coming from the Weather Channel to then be a professor. And so I was able to go out and do a reporting piece, which wasn't my intent to go and do that for my career, but I ended up in my first job being a part-time reporter because that was the only way I could get into my first TV station. So they definitely gave you this well-rounded look of the major and what to expect from every angle that I'm so thankful for. They really set you up well, uh, realistic expectations, what you might have to do beyond just being a forecaster and why it was important to be able to do those things, being a, a marketable, well-rounded meteorologist instead of just the one show forecaster that some colleges put out. So it was really great. Fantastic. Amazing world-class program right there. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your brother, so you got to give your brother a shout out since yeah. he went to Penn State. What is he doing? Give us a little oh bit about, about him. 
So he lives in Philly and uh, he went to Penn State for landscape architecture and then went to Johns Hopkins for his master's and eventually went to Temple for his doctorate. And he works now in sustainability and resiliency. Uh, so yeah, shout out to Mike. And, uh, and I did do a semester at Rutgers for a summer class and that's where my other brother went. So I appeased them both. Okay. <laughs> We're big fans of Mike. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So toughest question of them all. Favorite memory? Oh, my favorite Penn State memory. I was not, I'd say, a typical Penn State kid. I wasn't a big partier. But the electricity that came with a football weekend is unrivaled. I lived down on Frazier Street in Prospect, so toward the west end of campus. And I would walk to College Ave and just walk and grab a cup of coffee on a football weekend. That was something that I will never forget. There's electricity in the air. There was so much fun. I guess a particular thing I'll never forget, and I always point out when we play Ohio State, is how I could hear the crowd roaring when we won in, in 2005 and we beat them at home. I was home, I was sick, so I couldn't go to the game. Oh, no. And I was at my apartment all the way down in the south, you know, the southwest part of campus, complete diagonal, as far away as you could be from Beaver Stadium. And I could hear it when I went outside. I could hear the crowd roar. And then you hear the people down on uh, downtown a little bit later on. But I will never forget that. I couldn't go to the game. I was so ill, but I had to watch it. And I could not believe I could hear the screaming and the chanting all the way in my apartment. And that was a great game. That was awesome. <laughs> Jared, I think that's got to be at least the third time. I mean, that 2005 game is a uh, really left an impression on our guest so far. It's a popular <laughs> one for sure. So yeah. Mallory, I, th I would say you were fortunate in that when you came to Penn state, you had an idea of what you wanted to study. A lot of people can't say that. Yeah. Nevertheless, you're 18 years old as a freshman entering the university and you're still, it's still a whole new experience. Oh, yeah. If you were to go back and meet with that version of yourself, the 18 year old version of Mallory, what advice would you give to her? Oh, I tell her to loosen up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I feel like I really didn't take it my Penn State experience until I was about a junior or senior. I, I was one of those homesick kids. And so it was a tough start for me. And I think I would just, I wouldn't let myself enjoy it sometimes. And I don't know why, you know, you never go away from home and you're all of a sudden in the middle of Pennsylvania with 10,000 other freshmen in a dorm and it's overwhelming. So I would tell myself to loosen up, not to a destructive perspective, but be more open to the opportunities around you. Because when I finally got there, in my last couple of years, I, I never wanted to leave. It was such a great place to really find yourself and how you wanted to conduct yourself, what you wanted to be, and all the opportunity that you had around you. It, it was really, by the time I was graduating, I said, I wish I had one more year. I just want one more year. <laughs> There's still so much more I want to do. Um, so you touched on earlier how uh, you you mentor uh, the current uh, Penn Staters that are in meteorology. Tell us a little bit more about that and, and if there's any other ways in which you feel connected to the university these days. So I typically will wait for 
uh, it's usually Marissa or someone from the weather communications department. They'll reach out when they're at a certain point in the curriculum where students have to write mock interview questions or they have to do cold emails, uh, things that they'll have to do eventually when they're reaching out to prospective employees. This year, we had students, they had a project that they had to interview someone who graduated and what they ended up doing with their career that was outside the norm. And then they had to present on that person. So that's something I participated in this year. I'm always there for the professors. We, we stay in touch fairly often. And I just say, as you need me, please call on me. I'm always here to help. And so usually it's usually in fall semester that I, I hear from someone about needing some extra help or for a project that they're doing in the weather communications class. Fantastic. First, just really cool to hear fourth grade Mallory be so passionate about weather and then turn that passion into a career, which is amazing. And then I think everyone who's listening today will just have a new appreciation for what you do, but then just weather men and weather women overall. I've learned a lot. I know Russ has learned a lot. And it's great to, to have that level of knowledge and understanding around how technical that field is and how hard it is and how hard you, you all work too, especially waking up extra early on top of that. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for joining us. Of course. Thank you. This is wonderful. Really, as Jared mentioned, just eye-opening. And certainly we all have a great appreciation for what you do and keep up the great work. Oh, thank you. Appreciate we, it. We always end with, we are. Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruder production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.